Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Okay, City Limits on the air and uh, 54321 said Andy and he's pressing the buttons for us and we're now on air. John McPherson's here because it's first Friday, uh, first Wednesday of the month and uh, therefore it's Transport Day, John. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, plenty. And a big transport program this morning. Meg Kimber's here. Meg, good on you. It's good to see you. Hi, thanks. <laughs> Meg morning. landed in front of the microphone one second ago. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and of course, Mark Allen's over there as well, and he's sipping on something. And hello, Mark. Good morning. And uh, in the first part of the program, we're going to be talking to Vic Moore, who's a worker on the system. And Vic spoke at a <coughs> conference some weeks ago I was at. Um, talking about the history of the privatisation of the of the public transport system, and uh, and of course it was a, the the meeting in fact was organised to try to get the government because the contracts are new due for renewal in November this year, John, as you know, uh, to get the government to take these the public transport back into genuine public hands. Yeah. Uh, public transport these days is a bit of a misnomer in that sense, and. Um, and uh, he spoke excellently, and he's going to talk to us about it this morning, just that history and all the other companies that got involved, but more particularly the rip-offs involved in the way that uh, we could get much more for that value, for that money, if uh, we ran it ourselves. Yeah, it is, it is fascinating the way governments um, uh, happily give away the operation of these things, even a, even a Labor government. Like, like we've got at the moment. Yeah, I'm not sure you might say even a Labor government. <laughs> <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> bad as the rest of them. Uh, who wants tea this morning? Yes, John? please. Yeah, yes, okay. Please. There's a couple. Well, you pass. Some yeah, there we go. Yep, yep. I'll pour three teas. You, you three can chat about something while I pour. All some right. Teas. Well, can we keep chatting about that? Because I think that's the most fascinating thing of all. Why? I think it is interesting too. Yeah, yeah. I'll be interested to hear from from Vic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why governments um, like giving away the operation of um, these public entities? You know, once upon a time they were always government run. Mm. Well, it's intergenerational theft, really. He's correct. But in fact, one question I might have been asked Vic this morning, but um, one question I asked him was that because, given his union, the Rail Bus and Tram Union, is so heavily involved in ALP politics, how is it that the ALP prefers the private sector to a union that's affiliated to it? Because mm-hmm. the union is fighting for um, for the thing that's, to come that's back. That's a good one too, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, my, one of my, my theory is that the insiders all do quite well out of this arrangement. <laughs> And that includes the um, people who actually have jobs mm. currently in the um, transport system. Yeah, I don't know. Vic might disagree with you. He that. might. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think <laughs> but he it's, will. Uh, <laughs> but it's not, not quite the same for the outsiders, and the outsiders yeah. include the users. That's right. <laughs> very much the outside. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I just, just raised this very much in passing, and I think there's no need to actually comment, but you'll be pleased to know that Coles this week has attacked its suppliers for ripping people off. Oh, Coles. Coles. Yeah, I just thought I'd mention that. I don't know why. Is really? apropos Coles, of nothing. Coles, I has Coles yeah. become a charity organisation? Apparently. Apropos oh. of nothing, I just thought I'd give that a bit of a mention. <laughs> 
no other reason. But again, our Herald Sun for the week, bit Monday morning, the big headline all across the front page, Sky High Evil. Father-son teams planned a bomb flight using kitchen, etc., no alleged anywhere in the story. They're all they're all guilty as charged. The problem being they're not guilty as charged because they haven't been charged. Well, um, one of them has been released. Mm. One was released this morning. I would have yeah. thought, in fact, the one released this morning now probably has a... Well, I'd certainly seek legal advice about my rights vis-a-vis the uh, Murdoch yeah. Empire. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the... Uh, I just thought that was supposed to be no alleged, no anything. They're all guilty, so you may as well just you know do away with the trial, just hang them and wait. That's it. <clears throat> I thought it was illegal to actually not say alleged in the in the paper. I thought well, the other papers been. all did, but the Herald Sun made a big assumption that they've done it. I mean, if they if they if they're Islamic, if they're arrested for 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 terrorist charges, they've obviously done it. And the amount of stuff that got leaked about leaked about these guys over the weekend was incredible. Yeah, they were pasted and you know. Well, yes, and also... Fitted it up, fitted up in every direction. Yeah. And it was interesting that the media somehow just happened to be passing at the time when... Oh, yes, yes, that, that yes, always yes, happens, yes, doesn't yes, it? Yes, yeah, yes. Yes. Come for a ride with us, say the police. Yes, you'll, yes, be, you'll, yes. you'll like what you see at the end. Yeah. Yes, it's still very... Yeah. Well, when I say the media, 3CR didn't get an invite to my knowledge, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, the media that really matters in this society, let's put it that way. Yeah. So there you are. OK, um, I'm going to have a talk to Vic Moore. How are you? <laughs> There you go, I'm good. All right, you, you work in the train system somewhere, don't you? Yeah, yes, I do, yes. Yep. Yeah, okay. Now, look, um, I was at a, a conference a few weeks ago, Henry, where you outlined uh, the history of the privatisation process and the number of companies involved and the impact on the public purse. Could you just give us a bit of an outline of what you said? Well, look, basically we went through the, uh, a number of uh, key points, basically in relation to the changeover that happened uh, back in '98, uh, that then led to uh, sorry, major dispute that the union had. This is the RTBU, which was previously the PTU, uh, Public Transport Union. Uh, they then had a uh, dispute in 1997 with the then Kenneth government. Um, that went for 12 months. Uh, coming out of that process, there was then a privatisation uh, arrangement put in place. Um, that then saw a whole number of uh, things sold off, like your, your freight services. The, uh, the ticketing system at that stage was also sold off, um, which then later morphed into uh, MetCard. Um, and then you had the situation where the system itself was broken up. Uh, besides the freight obviously being sold off, you had uh, trams being given over then to um, National Express, uh, V-Line given over to National Express, um, and also part of the suburban system given over to National Express with Connex being the other uh, suburban operator of the train system at that stage. Yeah, and from there on, what happened? What's been the story since then? Well, since... <laughs> good, good question. Since then we had... Uh, that's why National... I asked it. That's why <laughs> I asked it. <laughs> Fair enough. Since then we've had, what, National Express throw in the keys... Uh, Yes, and they proved to be a bit of an ongoing disaster, which uh, took a number of years for their situation to be resolved. Uh, But the impact of that was that uh, the V-Line then went back into the hands of the the state government, also on the basis that they were doing lots of works around the regional network. Um, Trams and um, uh, the National Express side were given given over uh, to another operator. Uh, and then there was also the uh, the trains were then taken over by uh, then what was known then as Connex. Uh, they then Connex then lasted a few more years up to 2009, uh, at which 
which point they then lost their contract um, to a company called uh, Metro Trains, which is operated uh, part British, part Hong Kong owned, uh, and it's um, MTR operation, which became Metro Trains Melbourne. Uh, and here we are today. And, and you made the point that the public purse seems to have suffered more bad to you. The point I think you made was that if this was in public hands, we'd have a better system. Look, to get, to get cut right down in a nutshell, because there is a lot of experiences with uh, privatisation in other countries, but in a, in a nutshell, ours, our experiences basically repeated what's happened overseas, where everything that uh, needs to happen is funded by directly by the government, whether it's either more staffing or uh, additional services, or whether it's um, you know revamp stations or uh, you know or revamp or new lines or whatever. It's all coming out of the public purse. Uh, and also that the profits that uh, are raised by the companies uh, are then going off uh, overseas, you know, whether it's TransDev that operate the trams or whether it's um, MTM or MTR that are going back over to Hong Kong. Yeah, well, look, one of the interesting things was was in the, the days of National Express, that meant we ended up with two two fleets of trains and two fleets of trams, Henry. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that was one that of was, the stupidities, wasn't it? Well, and the other stupidity was that uh, neither company was talking to one another either. That's right. Uh, you know, it was um, it was ridiculous, really. I remember at the time, um, uh, you know, running around, pulling down um, posters, anything that had to do with the V-line had to come down uh, because they weren't associated with National Express. Yeah. Went um, after they folded up. Uh, so Connex was running around pulling their posters down. and Oh, it was, it, you know, it was just ridiculous. Um you know, just a really petty, small stuff that, you know, all costs in themselves, you know, the yeah. whole change of signage, the whole change of uh, even leatherheads, for example, you know. Yeah. All, yeah. Those, all those costs would have been borne by the taxpayer, not by the uh, companies involved. And the, and the fleets of trains, they couldn't even hook up to each other, I seem to recall. Yeah, and, they, you know, and there was also a you know, whole number of uh, training issues about people being on one side of the system yeah. and then having to be retrained in the other. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was just a, you know, just a, a dog's breakfast. And that was uh, sort of Jeff Kennett saying, oh, we want these two companies to compete, wasn't it? That was supposed to be the theory, somehow or other. Somehow yeah. or other they were supposed to compete. Yeah, yeah well, you know, the, the great competition, what uh, competition um, promised, uh, never, no. never eventuates, and not. it's always one where the taxpayer always picks up, uh, you know, always picks up the the lag between the, the two companies anyway. So, yeah. you know, yeah. in Indeed. fact, I think at the original proposal, I think they were talking about four suburban operating companies. <laughs> well, if you of course, know? if you want to go to Frankston and not Hurstbridge, then competition hasn't got a lot of meaning, has it? Mm. No, no. Well, <laughs> if you want to catch a train to get into the city, where's your competition there? Yeah, exactly. Mm. You know, the, comp- and, uh, the competition's really the private car. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. And you know, that's where most of the money's been going, really, in terms of um, highways and road infrastructure. You know, even if the rail had picked up a part of that percentage, uh, it would have been a, a miraculous system we would have had by now. Yep. Well, I noticed that Uber wasn't very competitive when the trains all broke down the other week. Yeah. He charged huge amounts of money for people to get home. So. <laughs> no, and if, if you read um, um, some of the stuff coming out of the Guardian in uh, the UK... Um, when they had, a, I think, that terrorist uh, attack in um, London on the London Bridge, uh, you know, Uber was charging exorbitant prices there. So they have a bit of a history of it. They do. Uh, they do. Well, worldwide of that type of, um, uh, you know, that type of fare structure that they operate, mm-hmm. and it's basically really 
you know, time of need like that, it's it really is a rip-off, really. It's, it's sad, yeah, it's very sad. Of course, the union and a number of community people at the moment are running a campaign for, try asking the government or trying to get the government to bring the whole thing back under total public control and the contract's due for renewal in, in November. Um, uh, that, that example, the other Thursday afternoon when everything just stopped in its tracks literally, um, wasn't a good example of privatisation, was it? That's a pretty, no. difficult, pretty difficult question, but try and answer it. Uh, you know. Look, the best way, best way to probably describe it was it was a dog, you know, if I said a dog's breakfast, it would be an understatement. Uh, I think it was a, a disaster. Uh, it's a disaster that nobody yet has really been able to answer the question why it actually happened, uh, what the source of it was. And, you know, we're, we're what, two, possibly three weeks clear of the uh, the event. Uh, and you have to be asking serious questions. Well, if you don't know the answer now, when are you going to know the answer? Uh, and it's a, it's a real major concern that a, uh, a system failure like that uh, is still left with a great big question mark sitting next to it. And probably the biggest question mark is that it happened only if they, um, it's supposed to be a private operator who's supposed to have their finger on the pulse. Uh, so, you know, I don't see too many fingers on too many pulses with this particular operation. <laughs> the, pulse, uh, the pulse had stopped, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, very much so. When, you know, there was no defibrillator hanging around either. <laughs> John, you had some thoughts on this yesterday. Yeah, or something. yeah. yeah. Um, it, uh, it's... It's it's interesting that that um, MTR was the um, is our operator. You know, and MTR regarded about the best in the business for running for running um, you know metros. I would think everybody seems to turn to them and say, "Oh yeah, they they run the Hong Kong system so so well." Yeah. Um, but I wonder too whether whether the whole system had to stop. If you know, if 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 there was if there was a failure in in one point. Why did that force the absolute whole system to stop? Or was it that, that they didn't really know where the failure was and that's the reason they had to stop the whole system? Well, I think it's a, I think it's a combination of things there. I think it was just one led to the other and I think it was the yeah. failure of their backup systems um, as well, from what yeah. I'm led, yeah. led to believe. Yeah, well, that, uh, it's about the fourth time the backup systems failed. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it does become a critical issue of uh, safety in this, and, you know, there would have been safety aspects as well. If you're not knowing uh, what you're heading into, then obviously you have to, you know, be really, really careful in terms of giving any order for trying to proceed anywhere. Uh, so, you know, you can understand in terms of uh, why they had to, to stop running parts of the system anyway uh, to ensure some of the safety. But you'd have to really ask yourself, well, you know, where's the disclosure about what's happened and where's the, you know, the, the, the debate from the public about, uh, well, yeah. where's this all taking us? Well, well that's, a, that's a very good question that I've often asked about the whole, the whole public transport thing. Where's the consultation about where, how decisions are made about, um, you know, the next, the next thing to be done in the way of capital works on the public transport system? Often, often these things seem to all happen in, in the dark and we, we're told about them at the last minute. But but I also wonder about with that event last whenever it was Thursday two weeks ago, yeah. Um, why the trains, for instance, couldn't have moved slowly that walking pace to the nearest station? I mean, I know all trains couldn't have gone gone to a station, but but um, it seemed to me that that would have been a sensible thing to do. 
Particularly for people stuck in the loop where they must have felt mm, terribly claustrophobic. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, I mean, anywhere that you could could move to, you know, move the train slowly to a near, near next station, why that couldn't have been done? Well, look, it, well, look I'm no expert on this particular yeah. um, uh, thing, but my understanding of it is, you know, you've got a couple of trains in front of you, a couple of trains behind you, and, yeah. uh, you know, if you got no access onto the onto the platform because there may well have already been a train on the platform in oh, front sure. of you. Oh, I, sure. I, I, so, I agree. You can't get, probably couldn't get all the trains yeah. to a station, but the ones you could get to a station, it would have been sensible to to move them there. But anyway. Well, look, I think, I think some of that may well have occurred, but yeah. the, I think, you know, I think that probably what we're talking about really is a matter that really needs to be open for yep. the public to yep. be able to say, well, look, you know, well, what did happen on that Thursday? Mm. You know, we're, Where's the, the disclosure about, you know, what yep. happened, the impact on people? Yep. Uh, and I think that, you know, one of the, the key messages that's missing here, besides the issue of the privatisation infrastructure, is that, you know, you've got you're well over 210 uh, suburban stations out there, yep. and only, only eight of them are, uh, are staffed. So, you know, you've, got then a, you've got, now got people stuck at about 120, yep. possibly 130 other unstaffed stations, not knowing what the bloody hell's going on, crammed in like sardines, yeah. relying on an announcement from a remote point yeah. to try and tell them that this is what you need to do next. It was, you know, it was absolute chaos. Mm. Absolute chaos. Yeah. Is staffing yeah. something... You've been there for a while, um, Henry, I, I understand. Is staffing something that has been affected? Like, what sort of changes have you seen, seen through the privatisation process? And- it... In terms of um, staffing, yes, look, I think the, the problem with it is that um, they've never been consistent in relation to staffing. It's always mm-hmm. been the case of, um, you know, they've either been, you know, 100 positions, you know, below mm-hmm. the number that they should be or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and it's all over the shop. Uh, you know, one minute there's an overtime uh, restriction put on by management so you can't cover certain shifts and then there's another one where they're not recruiting and mm. then they start to recruit and then they don't recruit again and you know mm. it, for people outside the industry it's um, difficult to understand you know what does it all mean but at the end of the day what it means is that the staff are under a lot more pressure mm. just to do what they normally would be doing mm. uh, and I think that that's you know that's the wrong message to be sending to people mm. uh, and it's also the wrong message to be sending about the direction of public transport you want to have that accessibility into the system and the greatest form of accessibility into the system is to rely on people giving other people information. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if we can talk about robots and machines, but at the end of the day, you know, you look at a person going up to the station, nine times out of ten they'll approach a person mm-hmm. to ask them information rather than going to a machine. Yeah. Much of this, by the way, happened parallel to the, to the getting rid of station staff altogether and, um, and of course, getting rid of people who actually sold you a ticket uh, oh. um, and also getting rid of guards on trains. Has that made a difference as well? Oh, look, I, I tend to think the issue of the, you know, the guards on the, the trains, I think, is one that's, you know, I think it's made a, a big difference. Uh, you know, the vandalism that's occurred on the, the network and the, the rear carriages of the suburban services, the people breaking into cabs and stuff, you know, that we've all read about that in the media. Uh, and now the issue of the... Um, you know, the, the lack of staffing on the stations, I just think it's, um, you know, it's a pretty poor show from the uh, from the operators when they can't get their act together uh, to ensure that at least that first point of contact is uh, properly staffed. I mean, it's, you know, these are people, you know, new people coming onto the system. It's an expanding network. Uh, 
uh, you know, there's a growth in the system, patronage growth. And, yep. you know, where's, where's the assistance? Nowhere, mm. you know. The majority of new stations that are being built, a lot of them are uh, unstaffed. Certainly there are some premium stations which are first to last, but, you know, a lot of them are just, you know, empty praf- you know, empty, empty shelves. And you're wondering what the, what's, what's going on here. They might have the PSOs there at night time, but that's a lot different to having somebody there during the day and they also say somebody there who actually knows a bit about the ticketing system. And who, who employs the PSOs? Who... Uh, well, I think it's Victoria Police, I think. Right. I, I believe so, anyway. Mm. Although they do stand to be correct on that. About... I mean, look, they do their role that they need to do, but that's a supplementary role to the role of... Um, yeah, the station staff, which is another role entirely. Yeah, it's, well, it's uh, another example of um, government services being applied to a system which has been privatised and then the private company benefits from public mm. assistance um, but none of the kind of advantage or... or um, yeah, and the PSOs yeah. could, could be flexibly used as station staff um, as much as guards too, but they're not. They've just got the rigid role. Of uh, being guards on the stations, yeah. Yeah, well, look, the PSOs have got their role, and I mean, you know, to a certain extent, they're also uh, authorised officers around the system, which do another thing in terms of largely revenue collection. But they also they're pretty good though during the issue of, um, uh, you know, when there's a, the overheads come down and stuff. I mean, they're involved in a lot of detraining of passengers off the of trains, uh-huh. um, and they do a very very good job in relation to that. Um, and in fact, I think that you know probably one of the issues coming out of uh, what happened last Thursday is that besides the issues of those stations being unstaffed, is that you know that area, uh, in terms of the authorised officers, probably would need to be boosted to ensure that people that are stuck are able to get off the services. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got them. You know, I don't know what Skyrail is going to be like, but um, you'd have to ask serious questions about you know, well, where is the staffing to be backing up all these new? Uh, fandangled developments that they're talking about, whether it's Sky Rail or something else. Well, getting off a getting off a train if it's stopped up on the up, up on the Sky Rail uh, rail line in the air, it's, it would would of course not be not be possible. I would think you can't well, de- you can't detrain people to the ground from on those viaducts. Well, well, I haven't seen a design of the viaduct, so you know there may well be a, an avenue where you might be able to get them off. Yeah, I uh, think it's. But, uh, but it'd be extremely difficult. Yes, yes. Mm. But, uh, the point you raised a moment ago, um, ever since they got rid of station staff and guards, etc., and now uh, and we've had um, the so-called um, officers on who check your tickets, the ticket checkers. I think most people now have the impression that it's a them and us system. It's you know the, the public transport system people enjoyed using. Now you feel it's it's you versus them almost. Um, do you get that feeling? I think it's set up uh, in relation to um, in relation to that to a certain extent, um, and I think that's probably the wrong way to sort of come at it. I mean, fair evasion uh, will exist in to, to some level, um, but it's a case of how you handle a situation. And I think that by uh, having you know 111 or 112 unstaffed stations is probably a you know for a start you're going to have an open system there, so that's uh, inviting, um, uh, you know, fair evasion. And at the end of the day, you know, it's really about how authorised officers are trained and supported in their role as well. Uh, to a certain extent, the minute uh, they might have a, a passenger that might arc up or get a bit um, 
snarky or whatever. Now, I mean, the management don't support them. Uh, they're left high and dry to a certain extent. The, um, uh, the Department of um, Justice or whatever they call now, uh, you know, they, they will quite often call them, call them in if there's a complaint. And you'd have to say, well, you know, why is all that happening uh, in this day and age when, you know, all the system is supposed to be about making the system more customer friendly? And I think mm-hmm. that the authorised officers do a do a, a very difficult role, a role that has still, to a certain extent, been evolving over the last few years. Remember, this is a fairly new type of role that's come into the network. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, their role has become one that's, you know, was initially going to be, you know, almost like a security role, and has now morphed into, um, you know, fair, anti-fair evasion um, stuff. Um, and also their, also their deployments were supposed to be based upon, um, you know, criminal activity around the graffiti and gang operation and all that type of stuff. Mm. So they, they, are, they are involved in a very difficult role that requires a fair bit of support, and I don't think they're actually getting it. And certainly their numbers aren't right either. Mm. Okay, look, we've got to wind up, but um, let's, let's go back to where we started. The union, I know, is involved. Sorry, with, my name's Henry. Oh, sorry, sorry Henry, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I keep forgetting your name. The union is fighting to have the whole thing brought back. How's the campaign going and where does it go from here? Well, look, the campaign, I think, is going really, really well. Uh, and people who haven't signed the petition can do so either through Facebook or online about hashtag it, um, you know, return uh, public transport back into public hands. Um, so... Uh, the RTBU, the Rail Chairman Bus Union, I think is doing a very good um, uh, series of actions. Uh, the State Secretary, Luba Gagarevich, has had a number of articles in the press recently. Mm. Uh, and there was an excellent article in the uh, Herald Sun uh, last week about privatisation. Uh, we're expecting, you know, at any stage, the government to be announcing uh, the issue of, uh, you know, uh, who the new contractor will be, whether it's MTR are going to be awarded it. I think we need as much pressure in the next couple of days uh, for you know people to sign on to that petition to try and keep the pressure on the government to yeah. at least rethink what they're doing. So how do people get get the petition and get onto it? Uh, they, yeah, cause they can contact the RTBU office, uh, which is on the website or the Facebook page at RTBU Victoria, uh, or there's a hashtag which is uh, Our Public Transport. Okay. Look, okay, uh, Henry, thanks for your time this morning and we'll keep in touch on it, but good luck and let's hope the campaign succeeds. Uh, thank you all and uh, wish you all the best uh, for the day. Okay, thank you. thanks a lot. Cheers. All the best. Thank you. Bye. We are now joined by Dr John Stone, who is the lecturer in transport planning at the University of Melbourne. Hi, John, how are you? G'day, Mac. How are you doing? Yeah, good. One thing that I have noticed um, is that obviously urban sprawl is accelerating at this time and it's car-dependent sprawl. Do you think that we have a problem with a lack of public transport investment on the urban fringe? Yeah, we're certainly building in car dependence on the fringe. Uh, it's it's not just the fact that we're um, you know we aren't investing in the public transport services, but we're actually planning these subdivisions so that really we're expecting most people to drive. Uh, you know, the, um, we build all the roads. We don't really know where the where the bus routes are going to be. So we build all the roads quite wide just in case they turn out to be the bus route. And, and we put the developments you know, into, the, into the middle of, the, the, middle of the, the new subdivision and, uh, and we don't give good access to any station that might be there. We, don't, we really don't think very much about other than sort of really, I mean, it's slightly different to what we used to build 
10, 15 years ago, but it's it's still really on being built on the assumption that people will drive their cars. And uh, people have found that the, the public transport services doesn't don't arrive until well after the, the residents have arrived, and they've already uh, established lifestyles but which have resulted in everybody in the household needing a car. Mm. You said it was different from 10 to 15 years ago. Um, what, what's the major differences? Well, we, we do now sort of say, well, which we do make the roads accessible by buses. A lot mm. of the uh, the subdivisions that we built 10 or 15 years ago, you couldn't even get a bus into them. So, oh. um, you know, so mm. there was no expectation that, that, that people would use public transport. But we, we really aren't thinking... We also aren't thinking about where the services are and where the destinations are, and that's the really important thing. We're just assuming that people will travel a long distance to get to a job. And mm. when you look at all the, the plans for subdivisions across particularly the west and the north and also down in the southeast, they're, just, they're basically just residential, and any services there are the small things, you know, a little supermarket, maybe you know, a doctor, a surgery or something like that, and, uh, mm. primary school, but... We're not thinking about where the big services are going to be, where are the hospitals, where are the universities going to be for, for people so they, they don't have to get in their car or a train and go a long distance. Every planner I talk to realises the importance of getting the public transport infrastructure in place prior to development and making sure that we, we don't create this car dependency. It's basic planning knowledge today. Why do you think that this paradigm shift hasn't happened? Is it the fact that there's just too much money to be made? that there's just not enough people who want to listen to planners and experts in the field like yourself. It must be very frustrating. Yeah, it is. And, uh, I mean, I think it's it's a question of, of how we allocate money to these things. Uh, it's I know that politicians love capital expenditure, but they hate operational expenditure. So by that I mean you, they love to build something, but... Uh, build a railway line like Mernda railway line, but I hear that there's potential problems with the the ongoing budget to actually run enough trains on the line. They might have to even have the trains, but they don't want to. Or they're not able to get the budget to, for the drivers to, to run them. So um, it, that's the because public transport is a, uh, a service that's provided by the state, subsidised by the state, in a way that uh, we don't see how we're subsidising other forms of transport. So it looks like it's really expensive. But if you think about it in terms of its global impact on the health and wellbeing of a city, as we saw when the trains went out a couple of weeks ago, you know know how important they are for the city. And so we have to really think about how we change the way we think about the money and where it goes into the system so that politicians are able to um, support ongoing services and services before people establish their car-dependent habits. John, um, our interview this morning, in fact, was about the privatisation process with one of the workers in the system, and you just raised the point about they can't, mightn't have enough money for drivers, etc. This raises that that different that problem between the private system and the public, etc., and who's responsible for what, which gets very obfuscated in the um, in the privatisation process we've got. It certainly does. You know, we've been looking at that over the years. You'd know, Kevin, um, you know how much these things are a problem and how every time we develop a new contract it gets more and more difficult to understand exactly what where the money is going I mean, the, it's it's hard for a 
bus company to introduce a, an innovation because the state won't let them. It's hard for the state to push a bus company or the rail system to do it because the contracts are, are set. So um, it just it really does add an extra layer of complexity and um, you know, obfuscation into knowing how the system will work. And you know, really, we are. Um, transferring money to to these private companies in a in a way that um, doesn't necessarily add to the services that people are getting. Mm. And last, you mentioned also about uh, the location of stations, etc. And um, last time we had you on, you you raised the point that what what the Herald Sun's attacking as Sky Rail, these going over in level crossings. Um, you said this had all sorts of advantages. Do you still argue that? I do, yeah, and I think I mean it'll be really interesting. I, I hear that down at Murrabina, you can actually see the the elevated rail, and uh, yes, the so, first first beams are in place, John. This is John yeah, the first. Have you seen them? I, I mean, I haven't been down there yet. But um, a, yeah. a, a good mate of mine has, and he said that they're not as obtrusive as he thought they'd be. Yeah, well, that's the thing, and, and the, one of the things that we've found in our work leading up to this, and we were you know, talking to the government about it, was how actually going a little bit higher makes them less obtrusive because you get more light underneath. Mm. And, uh, and I think I think when, once people see that, that that space underneath, and, and if the government really engages with communities to say, how do we make this space, this new space that we have underneath, work well? You know, if they, if they just say, oh, it's going to be lots of car parks, then you know, we're missing out on a really big opportunity. But it's going to be a long process as the community and the, and the government and the councils really look at what are the opportunities there and start to try and um, and sort of realise them. So, such as, I mean, you mentioned about last time about buses, pedestrians, yeah, cyclists. Well, I mean, there's, the, you've got a, basically a linear park now if you um, activate it in the right way. You can, you know, you'd be um, bike routes and things like that. But the, the main purpose for a public transport system of having a good elevated rail is that you can bring the buses right mm. into the foot of the elevator, or the, the escalator, the, the, the steps up to the station platform. Yep. And you've got all those points where you can cross the railway line. And, and that, that means that the, the buses become a much more efficient feeder to the, the rail system because you know, our rail system obviously can't reach everybody. And for it to work and to get all the, the bums on seats for, for all the new investment that they're doing, they're going to have to uh, improve the bus system, so bring them in in, in straight lines into the, into the, the, into the stations. And, and the elevated rail gives us a real opportunity to, to, to start to do that. Talking about um, elevated rail, it makes me think of um, quite a few places I've visited in North America that, that use that system. I'm just wondering if you have any examples of best practice in terms of um, public transport for cities the size of Melbourne, which are pretty, pretty big. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, really, the, the best practices are the places where the whole system is seen as a single network mm-hmm. and is managed in that way. So mm-hmm. uh, you'd instead of having a myriad of bus contracts, you've designed the bus routes centrally and uh, you design them to, to maximise connections mm-hmm. across the city. So, I mean, people know in Melbourne that you can't get from Brunswick mm-hmm. to Northcote. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, it's ridiculous. But, but, <laughs> Very true. Yeah, or, you know, anywhere across town. And... And then if you say buses to people in Melbourne, you, you can visibly see them cringe. But, <laughs> but if, if you're in a 
sit, I went in Vienna recently and I had to get a bus across town and I did the Melbourne sort of, oh my God, mm. this is going to be terrible. But the bus was modern. It had all the information I needed about transfers to the next route. It told me where the bike share share was to, you mm. know, if I wanted a bike share at a particular stop. It, it, it did the job seamlessly and that's the sort of thing that... Um, that best practice public transport does. It's really about getting those connections right, isn't it? So we have a good integrated system. Because yeah, as, as you say, I mean, we're never going to get trains out to everyone. No. And it, and it also is how do we think about what happens around the station? You know, when, when anybody talks about development around the station, you've got all the um, real estate people pushing to get apartments. And, you know, that's great if you, you know, have an apartment near a station and you work along that railway line. Mm. But um, really, the best way to get to this sort of what the, the plan is called transit-oriented development is to, to bring your destinations around the station so that people from the surrounding suburbs, if they're going to a, you know, for anything they need, whether it be a, you know, a doctor or a supermarket or a library, if that's near the station, then all the public transport ability of taking a trip away from there or just getting there. So you, you're doubling your patronage for a, for a single service. So uh, that's the sort of model we'd like to see of, of how we think about um, development around space. So, so an actual usable hub that's, yeah. that's, that's yeah. there for yeah, rather than, just rather than just you know, some flash apartments. That's something that, um, you know, it's, it's starting to happen, but it really needs, we need, and it's sort of central to what the government calls the 20-minute city in, in places like Plan Melbourne, the, you know, the latest metropolitan strategy. But then we you know, we talk about 20-minute cities and then, you know, the big elephant in the room there is Transurban's huge road through the western suburbs and into the central city, which uh, acts on the premise explicitly that we can't, that things like 20-minute city is impossible and we just have to bring people into the city. In fact, of course, when they first built City Link, they told us you could get from Dandenong to the airport in 36 minutes, which was, yeah. uh, which you know, which we keep saying you can do at 3 a.m. But yeah. now, now they say that um, the new extension they're doing to it at the moment, which is causing disruption on the roads, etc., when it's finished, will cut another 30 minutes off. So that means you can go in six minutes from Dandenong to the airport. I'm not sure. Yeah, well, you'll be getting there before you got up. But yeah, it's, it's this new road is really. Worrying for for me because CityLink, you know, we all knew that it was a road to get people into the centre, into into the CBD. That was, you know, but nobody actually said that. We called it a bypass. And for 30 years, we've actually had policies which have said the best way to get to public to the CBD is by public transport or active transport. Mm -hmm. And we've had policies that support that. This road actually tears up even the pretense of being a city bypass. It's the first time that they've actually put on the maps, put on the plans, the off-ramps leading from CityLink into the, the CBD from the from the west through north and west Melbourne. And, you know, you can see the city of Melbourne usually sort of mm. very mild-mannered when it comes to... Uh, transport issues, didn't really get on the bandwagon with East-West Link like some of the other inner-city councils, but their report that the council has supported recently says we absolutely do not want Transurban's big, mm. big tunnel because and elevated road because it tears up 
30 years of work we've done to, to make the city more livable. And indeed, um, you were, I'm sure you would have read it, Clay Lucas in The Age a couple of weeks ago had an article in which he concluded that Melbourne is getting yet another big road that will... Um, deliver a significant gain for the private company which proposed it, we taxpayers will pour billions into building this road. As more facts emerge about it, the gains for transurban become clearer, the gains for the rest of us less so. Yeah, well, I, I absolutely agree with Clay on that. I mean, really, I mean, basically what's happening is that they're, ex- they're wanting to extend their... It's not, it's not a done deal yet, but they want to extend their concession on, mm-hmm. the, on City Link mm-hmm. yeah. so that people will continue to pay tolls for a lot longer on CityLink to cross-subsidise the, the the cost of this big road. And they're putting a whole lot of money on the table with the you know, guaranteed return on the, on the tolls. And that makes it attractive to the government because they, you know, they, they can get the Herald Sun off their back for saying, you know, you don't support motorists. And, but still we're putting $1.5 billion of, of state money into this project if it goes ahead and uh, and it won't fix the problem for those people in the west who've got a desperate need to get the trucks off the road it basically entrenches truck traffic as the main way of getting it out of the port well, and it doesn't deal with with the problems of people getting from from the west to to jobs that we talked about before well it's 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 fascinating that it started out as a a project to try and relieve the inner west of trucks let's say it started out as that and then Transurban came along with their much larger version, which was obviously a um, stalking horse for enlarging their toll road system overall and yeah. extending its their their you know their contract for another twenty years. So, yeah. uh, so so it, it's it's ostensibly got got the, got one one um, um, purpose, and yet its real purpose is is about making cities transurban richer for longer. Yeah, and, well, and with, with absolutely no no concern about what it actually does to the city or, 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 or you know, the future no, of Melbourne the, in general. that's what this, as Clay's pointed out, that's yeah. what the city of Melbourne have... have yeah, uh, but it's, really more than, it's more than the city of Melbourne, really. It's, yeah, it's, well, uh, that's the thing. It's this, but, but I think that the fact that... I see the city of Melbourne's intervention on this is really important yeah, because it yeah. does does show that it's not just you know us folk on 3CR sort of talking about yeah, these things. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's something that's an issue right across Melbourne. And what's happening right now is that the environmental effects statement is in progress, yeah. and it's a insultingly short time for people to deal with understanding the impacts of this huge huge project. But it it is allowing people to. Uh, put their opinions and both and and I think what that does is it it really gets people realizing uh, while for some people there is a sort of short term relief of getting some trucks off their road and and you can understand their desperation to do that mm, but mm. but it's also becoming clear that people in Kingsville Spotswood further west towards Altona they're realizing that um yep they're going to get some of these these loads it's on, on their streets. Further, further west. Yeah, so unless we be, really yeah. deal with it, the problem at the source, which is how do you get mm. freight onto rail from the port? Yeah. And there's there's clear uh, projects that can do that. But we're way behind have, Sydney, by the way, on on that. Yeah, we're, we're behind you know the rest of the world on. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, people people often talk about. You know, 
when the uh, a few years ago we used, always used to talk about Melbourne becoming like Los Angeles, but <laughs> if you look at Los Angeles today, they're building light rail, yes. they've got an electric <laughs> rail port, they've yep. you know they've got air con- con- quality controls that we'd, we would only dream about here. You know, in yeah. a way, I think we'll bring on the evangelization of Melbourne. Even the railway, even the railroad locomotives in the Los Angeles basin have to have special pollution controls. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, people in the northern hemisphere are now mm. really aware of um, what diesel pollution does to to yes. <laughs> to, to, to all of us to have, mm. that have to breathe it. But the the, the other the, another angle of this too, of course, is that that the commuter cars have to be brought into this whole package to, to again, make the package pay. Yeah, well, when you've got... When you're building something, you know, people might not realise what it is. It's it's a six-lane tunnel under yeah. Yarraville, yeah. and it's called a tunnel, but it actually pops out in Yarraville in, you know, places where sort of decimating communities there, but then it travels across Marib- the Maribyrnong River and across along Footscray Road as a double-decker freeway. Yeah. And then and when it gets to CityLink, there's a huge spaghetti junction there which uh, will have off-ramps going into Wurundjeri Way and double-decker freeways through what was going to be the, the sort of environmental community of Egate. And, you know, it's it's just massive, and so you're right. I mean, it's, you, you've got to get lots of passenger cars onto it and you've got to cross-subsidise it from uh, from CityLink and the extensions that they're the building, the widening of their... The Tullamarine to to make it work, and Tim Pallas, of course, I think would would have been in this from the beginning. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, while he was the hero in stopping East West Link, he's really you know, yep. you know they've they've tied themselves to this, but but they, you'd have to think that people in the West might be you know starting to say, well, what is what is the point of a mm. Labor government if you know. They haven't even got the extra trains on the Werribee line that they no. promised, and yeah. and it's just it's impossible to get on a train in to, along the Werribee line in the morning now. It's yeah. disastrous, really. I mean, when you consider that we're facing a climate emergency and we need to rapidly decarbonise our economy, <laughs> and we're investing so much into cars and traffic, and also when you factor in the the fact that Melbourne is growing at the rate that it is, we're just setting ourselves up. We're also setting ourselves up by having the private toll road company for yep. I mean, what what I mean, people should look out for a, an article that Royce Miller wrote in the age you can still get it on online uh, in May last year um, looking at where transurban's going across up and down the, the east coast of Australia mm. in terms of road pricing and autonomous vehicles and setting us setting themselves up as being the um, the, the agency that uh, collects and makes Makes money from from a whole from tolling across the road system, which all the you know, you know, lots of people inside government and think tanks are all talking about. Is you know, we're going to have to be mm. have to, well, so so those things are uh, you know while they you know electric cars and autonomous cars and all of those things sort of offer us a carrot of um, you know, clean mobility. As we talked about before, if, if cars are the basis of the, the system, then we're going to have a Yep. sprawl and with all of those problems. Well, just recently, one of the big investment advisors said that Transurban's the big company to invest in at the moment. It's the top of the list. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, if you 
read Royce's article, it's really clear you know, how much they're, they're making money. They have a vision. They do, they do. And as somebody said, somebody negotiating with them in New South Wales, you know, they don't just take the you know, they don't just take everything off the table, they take the laminex as well. <laughs> they're known as, as really tough negotiators. And they have governments over a barrel because you know, the, the cheer, cheer squads in Herald Sun and... Yeah, yeah. You mentioned, and we've only got about a minute left, unfortunately, John, but you mentioned about um, big, big um, apartments next to stations, etc. But you mentioned also Egate, and it's one example, and there's a number of public lands around some of these stations being developed where we'd argue on this program they're ideal for public housing and yet they're, they're given over also to private developers. I mean, there is an argument there. It's another area, but it's an argument there for public housing as well. Oh, absolutely, it? yeah. And, yeah. and that's the, the thing. If you start building a good public transport network, then places which are attractive for public housing um, around good bus routes and around stations, uh, you really do need to you know, have the, the zoning and the other things that we could talk about another time which mm. you need to to make social housing attractive for to be built in the, the, the places where it's needed unfortunately we're out of time but uh, look thanks for your time this morning and we'll, we will for you eventually we'll do it again we will do it again shortly yeah yeah thank you so much john no much problem at all it. i enjoyed it thanks okay. a lot cheers john thank cheers you. so the co-founder of permaculture david holmgren will be joining us next week to talk about retrofitting the suburbs fantastic Yay, yes. permaculture cities <laughs> meg's looking very excited i'm really excited <laughs> <laughs> I, I said to um I said to Mark yesterday, they'll guarantee Meg will be in next week. <laughs> <laughs> we'll all be in next week. John, you, you're sort of the guest today. Thank everybody for doing it. Okay. Thanks to this great team. See you next week.